We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bondrovix. Joining me today is Jesse Felder, founder, editor, and publisher of thefelderreport.com. How are you today, Jesse? Thanks for joining me. Doing good, Tom. Thanks for uh, having me on again. Always great to talk with you. Absolutely. And, you know, today is going to be no exception here. You recently wrote an article really talking about that the market seems to be pricing in a Goldilocks scenario at the moment, which means that inflation comes back to 2%. And because of that, additional rate hikes won't be necessary. And that will get a soft landing that the Fed was after with either a minor recession or none at all. Then looking down the road, the Fed can lower rates again, and this will all be good for the economy and the stock market. I thought that this was a great way to really talk about this idea because, you know, if you maybe go back and rewind what I just said, we're looking at, let's say, a holistic picture of what the Fed and really the Treasury Secretary Yellen expects. You know, considering she came out in the first week of January and said, we've achieved this soft landing. And as you told me before we hit record here this morning, that's very likely going to be, you know, come under question here. So taking this whole picture again, let's start by breaking it apart. Is inflation going to, you know, prove stickier than expected? I, I absolutely think so. And I think we saw that with the latest CPI report. When you look at things like, um, you know, super core CPI, which is services, uh, inflation, less housing, right? This is basically a representation of kind of the underlying uh, trend of inflation that's driven by wages and spending. And, you know, that, uh, you know, Michael Ashton pointed out in his blog post uh, last week uh, that, this measure of inflation started to turn higher again in the last couple of months and is, you know, solidly above 4%. So I, I think that's the type of thing that you have to look at to understand what is the trend of underlying inflation and just look directly at wages, right? Wages are, you know, pretty holding pretty sticky above 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, speaking of sticky, you can look at sticky CPI. I think it's something that I think the Atlanta Fed tracks and that's that's tracking well well above you know four or five percent. So all of these kind of underlying inflation trends are still relatively strong. And so to to think that that you know we can now say mission accomplished the Fed has done enough to bring inflation back sustainably to its two percent target, I think is is you know way optimistic. <laughs> right. There, there's just not the evidence there yet. That suggests that that that's happening. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that eventually the Fed is going to have to accept a higher than two percent target? I do. I, I think the other thing that we're running into here is we're just now hitting the point where the tightening in monetary conditions should really start to hit the economy and the refinancing of all kinds of debt. Um, we're seeing it, you know, in interest expense on the, you know, the federal level. But with corporations, you know, starting to refinance, we're gonna we're seeing bankruptcies tick up. Uh, well, right now, when you look at, you know, you can use the Fed funds rate as a good two-year lead on a lot of different things. And we're right now hitting that peak 
uh, you know, two-year uh, inflection point of you know when the tightening really started to to to, to happen. Um, and so I, I think we're we're at the point now where we're going to just start to see the, the the problems with this tightening. I think we could see uh, these these types of things uh, play out in terms of financial stability. And, and this is something that Simon White at, at Bloomberg has written about recently, suggesting that this March rate cut, the our markets are pricing in a March rate cut. And all the Fed heads have come out and said, hey, that's way too aggressive. There's no reason for us to cut rates in March. So how do you explain it? Why are markets still convinced that that we're that the Fed's going to cut in March? And I think it comes back to the financial these financial stability concerns with quantitative tightening. We've already started to see in the last you know few months signs of really you know uh, tightening of of monetary conditions within the banking system, um, and it could be over the next month or two we see quantitative tightening reach the point where money becomes really tight within the banking system. And you could start to see issues like we saw potentially in 2019, the last time the Fed engaged on a significant quantitative tightening uh, era, uh, where, you know, that manifest in problems in the repo market. And we had, you know, this, this kind of monetary fiasco where the Fed had to come in and reverse course and, and, and kind of come to the market's rescue. I think that's the only way you get a March rate cut is if you start to see some real problems in the money markets. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that is something to keep a, a close eye on right now. Mm-hmm. So, Jesse, how do we break inflation apart a little bit more, you know, based on data, based on the data that's being reported from this point? Is looking at PCE or PMIs helpful in this case right now? I think, you know, there was another great thing that I read about the the difference between CPI and PCE. And and a lot of it is, um, you know, just down to uh, healthcare effects, whereas PCE tracks healthcare spending based on the government spending uh, on healthcare through like Medicare and those types of things, which is not really representative of what people actually spend in the real economy. So CPI more closely tracks that. So we're seeing, you know, core PCE come you know back to the target which is really what the fed has explicitly said they target coming back to fed's target faster than like core cpi and it comes down to those healthcare effects so i think it's going to be difficult for the fed to say we've accomplished this even if core pce comes back around the 2% level which which it really has on you know a 3 month uh you know annualized basis 6 month annualized basis but of course, of course, CPI is not there. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, you know, and, and the Fed has pointed pointed to things like super core inflation and wages and the things that are really going to give them the confidence that they've done the job. So I, I think that, you know, they're, they're, we're talking about a few different things here with inflation. The inflation is just part of the mandate. And I think it's going to be difficult for them to to for them to declare mission accomplished on the inflation side of the mandate until you see wages uh, and things like that really really come down from their five percent plus level. Mm-hmm. So now let's turn to talking about the other side of it. Are the fundamentals for the inflationary drivers, like let's say raw materials, still strong at this point as well? Well, the supply and demand, I think, for commodities generally is very, very bullish. And this just comes back to the capital cycle, which, uh, you know, is, is something I think is, is probably 
the most important thing, you know, underlying fundamental to pay close attention to. And it's basically, it's very, very simple. It's how much money has gone into this sector of the economy or this, this stock market sector over the last five years or plus. And because when money flows in, it, in, it creates supply. Uh, and when money comes out, when, when, a, when a sector of the economy is starved of capital, that reduces investment in that sector and reduces supplies. And so what we've seen over the last you know, five, seven, eight years is money has flowed into the technology sector. I mean, especially over the last 12 to 24 months, we've seen a massive amount of money go into things like AI and investing in, in supply of, of product and services in that area. Meanwhile, really since the 2014 oil price crash and the, the 20, you know, 12, 13 crash in precious metals, we've seen commodities be starved of capital for about a decade. And so that, that tells you that supplies are going to be constrained where, where capital was constrained, supplies are going to be constrained for years to come. And that's in the commodity sector. Now, where, where capital was, was really uh, prevalent in the technology sector and startups and all this AI stuff, um, there, there could potentially be an oversupply of products and services in those areas. And so I think that's that's you know uh, just on a very basic fundamental level something that's you know key to kind of keep in the back of your mind. So with supplies you know tight generally in the in the commodity sector, there's not a lot of I mean, you know copper you could look at. There's just not a lot of ability to to ramp up copper supplies uh, around the world. To, to if you know demand were to, to surge for one reason or another, we'll get to the demand side. But same thing with for oil, right? We've seen uh, oil supplies. I mean, U.S. U.S. oil has been the the swing producer for years now with, through fracking. But what we're seeing is uh, all these fracking major fracking areas have have really kind of hit peak production. Permian is the only one that hasn't, but it's getting really close. There's a lot of data that suggests Permian could could uh, reach peak. Peak, peak production here real soon, and the supplies of this you know major swing producer could really come under strain for the first time, really in the history of, of fracking in the U.S. Mm -hmm. The same time you have uh, some, you know the, the Saudis and OPEC Plus saying we're going to constrain production, and so I, I think you know supplies generally uh, in in oil. Not to mention the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which has been drained at you know the, the the greatest level we've ever seen since it was created half century ago. So supplies are are really constricted. At the same time, you have all these estimates for demand continuing to hit new records. Right, all all the estimates of demand for oil hit record this year, new record next year, and then you have the demand for uh, you know this green revolution and you know demand for for producing EVs. And green energy, uh, solar panels and wind and demand, all of this is going to demand a lot of uh, commodities. And so the supply demand picture, I think, for commodities is, is very, very bullish. I'm still for the last few years, I've been saying I think we're in the early stages of a commodity super cycle. I still believe that for the fundamentals, you know, supply demand uh, outlook. I'd like to get to that, let's say the commodity super cycle in a little bit, Jesse, but I'd like to return right now to talking about what the chances are, as you see it, of the Fed achieving the soft landing right now. I, I think they're probably as, as uh, well, put it this way, we've never seen inflation come down from above 4 or 5%. I think the economist 
put this out. We've never seen inflation come back down from such an elevated level above 4% without creating recession. Um, tightening that we've seen is one of the most rapid and significant tighten, tightenings in the history of the Fed. Uh, and as I said, we're just now entering that time where you have that two-year lead of interest rates over economic activity is just now starting to bite. So I've said, you know, uh, and, and this was clearly wrong, that that uh, a recession, 2023 recession was a second half phenomenon. Um, you know, we, we, we saw signs of, of slowing in different areas, but we, we obviously didn't get that recession. And that comes down to a strong labor market. Um, I, I do think we are still, I mean, I, to, to say that we didn't have a recession last year means we're not going to have one, I think is, is uh, you know, kind of the height of, of uh, over-optimism. Because the, the, the issues that were, that, uh, were, were kind of uh, pushing us towards recession are, have not gone away. Anything, they've just gotten more poignant. And, and so I think we still have this massive monetary tightening that we've seen. We have, uh, you know, dwindling of consumer um, uh, finances in terms of, um, you know, the money that they saved through the pandemic. We see this in, in record uh, credit card delinquencies now. Um, and so I think the consumer is coming under strain. We, you know, I, you're hearing it from ton all these companies that have announced earnings early this earnings season, um, whether it's Nike or FedEx or whoever. Uh, so I, I think that the chances of a soft landing are are slim to none. Mm -hmm. And frankly, you know, you mentioned that that Goldilocks piece. That was that was a, a piece that Howard Marks wrote. I love Howard Marks because he constantly pounds home this idea of uh, in order to make money in the markets, you have to have a non-consensus view about the economy or valuation or fundamentals, and you have to be right. And so if you believe we're having a soft landing, right? There's no opportunity for profit there because that's the consensus that's priced in. So even if you get a soft landing, that's priced into the into the markets already. There's really no opportunity for profit. So if that's what's priced in and then that's not what we get, I think his point was there's a huge potential for disappointment here. Whether you disappoint on the inflation front and inflation remains higher and you don't get a recession, that means the Fed has to be tighter for longer, which would disappoint the markets. Or you disappoint on the uh, the growth side of the economy, and you actually do get a recession, and the Fed you know cuts rates, but it's not bullish for for risk assets because earnings are going down and all of these other things that are associated with recession. So there's a lot of potential for disappointment. I think we could potentially disappoint on both sides, where you get sustainably higher inflation and weaker growth than a soft landing would would imply. Mm -hmm. So what does that in turn mean for the Treasury market. If we do get a recession, how does that end up affecting the Treasury market, Jesse? It's a it's a great question. I mean, it's it's a market I've been watching uh, very closely because it's it's this is a market that's not acting like it has for the last forty years. You know, it's not acting like a, a risk off barometer. It's acting like a risk on barometer um, that, you know, people are taking, you know, uh, bonds rally during the risk on phase. Um, and, 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 and so that's, that's something different. And I, and I think one thing that I'm, I'm concerned about, and uh, Ed Yardeni has talked about this, the guy who coined the phrase, the phrase uh, bond vigilantes, um, that 
with the the deficit so massive, I mean, we've never seen a, a deficit to GDP of 7% during an economic expansion since World War II. And the fact that we have such a massive deficit with no economic emergency in sight should be worrisome to treasury holders that that uh, the amount of debt uh, is growing very, very rapidly. I mean, that's that's all that that points out to you. 7% Debt to uh, deficit to GDP means we have to grow debt, you know, debt um, by seven percent of GDP just to to pay our bills. Uh, during a recession, that might not be out of line, right? I mean, that would still be pretty significant. But it, it points to if we do get a recession and the deficit blows out even further, right? It's going to just only uh, significantly increase the supply of Treasuries. At a time when uh, you know uh, the, the the supply demand is already coming to question, right? That's what we saw last year with with the ten year Treasury yield pushing to five percent. Uh, there was a lot of talk about uh, where's the demand. There's just not the demand mm-hmm. to meet the massive supply uh, that's coming in Treasuries, and so that's one thing that I worry about is if we do get a get a, a recession and supplies just grow exponentially. Uh, that there won't be the demand there, uh, and the Fed will have to. The Fed will have to kind of come in and make up that that gap. Now that's a that's a real problem. I mean, I think this is the this is the the, the night the ultimate nightmare for the Fed that if they haven't done enough on the inflation side, and they have to come back into the Treasury market, it really sends a signal that we've entered we've clearly entered a period of fiscal dominance where the tre- the Fed is not free. To manage, uh, you know, its affairs, its balance sheet as it sees fit, it's forced to do the bidding of the treasury, and that's a very bearish message for inflation. Uh, it suggests that the the Fed Fed's hands are t- really tied in its battle with inflation. Inflation has sustainably entered a new uh, elevated uh, era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a crazy scenario to think of, and. Obviously, there are, you know, a decent amount of signs, I think, that that era is coming. But has the Fed already needed to up the size of the Treasury auctions because of the operating losses from 2023? And could that be, you know, part of an artifact in the data due to the quantitative tightening that we saw? Well, yeah, I mean, the the Fed has um, whatever I think they call, uh, you know, retained losses or something on the balance sheet, which, you know, for years they've they've earned interest and made a profit on, you know, the, the Fed has acted like a, a massive hedge fund for, since really since the, the the great financial crisis where we're going to buy tons of treasuries and we're going to earn whatever they're paying, you know, 2% at the time. And we're going to uh, print 0% interest money in order to 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 purchase those, and so you know our cost of capital is zero. We're printing money, and we're not paying any interest uh, at the short end, which is where we're borrowing, and we're going to earn interest on on the long end. And all that net interest went to the treasury, and actually was you know uh, helped the treasury uh, kind of uh, you know not not to a major extent, but helped reduce reduce deficits on you know on the treasury side. And, Issue need to issue less debt and, and what have you, and so that's reversed now, right? Where the the Fed has massive losses because they they bought all these bonds at one percent, two percent yields during the pandemic, 
And now they're paying 5% Fed funds rate uh, at, at the short end. Uh, and so they, they have, you know, it's, it's like a, uh, you know, a, any normal bank who was in this situation, Silicon Valley bank, for example, is why, why, you know, these banks went bust. Mm-hmm. It's because they were doing what the Fed was doing. We're going to use a bunch of short-term debt to buy long-term assets. And, and then we lose money on those assets and we're losing money in terms of net interest margin. So the, the Fed is now in this situation that put Silicon Valley Bank out of business. And so it, it you know, it, it, it ostensibly creates, you know, exacerbates the deficit on the, on the, on the federal side, the, the treasury side of things. Um, you know, and, and I don't think people necessarily, uh, that, you know, as long as the Fed is in this situation, it worsens the, worsens the, the deficit situation, not only because the Fed can't pay, uh, you know, interest back to the treasury, right? It can't do that, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not passing the losses on either to the treasury, but, those losses at the Fed are a government, another government liability, uh, right? They're going to have to be, uh, you know, paid back at some point. So, I, I think that uh, you know that that is another uh, thing to appreciate that that the Fed can only do this for so long. Um, you know, of, of paying five percent on the short end and, and earning two percent at the long end uh, before these these this you know operating loss becomes so big uh that that it becomes a political problem mm-hmm. so let's go back to kind of the last piece kind of the down the road piece of that goldilocks scenario is the fed going to be able to lower rates due to achieving its goal here <laughs> i i think if if we get rate cuts mm-hmm. the, the the rate cuts that the market is expecting right now which is you know uh, significant. I think the Fed has said, you know, through the dot plots, you know, we envision three 25 basis point cuts by the end of this year. The market, I think, is expecting double that. Um, the only time the Fed has ever cut that much, uh, you know, 150 basis points in the, the amount of time that the market is expecting is is in kind of a recessionary type of situation. And so I think that's that's most likely, right? A, uh, like I said, I think the market rate specifically is only going to happen if you get these financial stability concerns cropping up in the next couple of months. So I, I think that, that uh, for the Fed to cut 150 basis points. The only way that happens is if we see a rise in unemployment, uh, we and the classic signs of recession, um, and that's really kind of I think the the missing piece right now is if you do start seeing rising unemployment, and they're leading indicators suggesting that we will, um, then then uh, then then that, that that's what will really validate those types of cuts. Um, I don't think if if we just see core PCE come back sustainably to two percent, but but uh, you know, and, and wages come down and these types of things without a recession, the Fed can can really cut because there are too many signs that the the economy, uh, the underlying inflation trends are still are still too strong. I think for the Fed and the and the Fed Fed uh, officials who have been come out recently, they, they've said that very thing that right now we 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 cannot uh, start cutting rates because there are too many signs, you know, we need to see more signs of, of inflation coming down in a sustainable way. 
So I think the odds of of that happening are are really uh, slim to none. Um, where you get that uh, inflation coming down in a sustainable way, and the economy is still kind of doing well enough that you can't really call it a landing. Mm-hmm. Jesse, what level do you think would we get for interest rates being a reasonable target if the economy was healthy and growing, or are we kind of missing the point by thinking in that way and the market should just be really setting the price of money? Well, I, I think you bring up a good, a good um, you know, I, I think investors have in the post 2008 era, investors have gotten used to the idea that 0% money is normal, right? And it's absolutely the furthest thing from normal, mm-hmm. but you know, recency bias is a very powerful um, thing. And so, you know, there are a lot of people whose only experience of markets is when the Fed held interest rates to 0% and was printing money to support the treasury market. Now, disinflation uh, was really the the key thing that allowed the Fed to even pursue those policies. Mm -hmm. So you got to think about where did that disinflation come from? Well, it came from uh, demographics and globalization, right? So demographic side of things, we had the baby boomer, the baby boom in the U.S. These guys came into their peak earning years in 2000 and uh, were not retiring until really uh, we thought a lot of a lot of them would be retiring in that 2008, 9, 10 timeframe. But because of the housing crash and the crash in the stock market, that retirement uh, was delayed for a lot of baby boomers. They stayed in the labor force longer. So the labor force was bigger than it otherwise should have been. Put downward pressure on, on wages mm-hmm. on top of the fact that we had globalization, right? China entered the World Trade Organization in 2001 and the offshoring of labor rented and represented another huge um, labor supply shock on the positives. All of this helped keep wages down. You had the baby boom generation and staying in the labor force. And then you had uh, a massive um, influx of essentially low cost labor um, in in China. So now those things, you know, where we, where do we stand on those? Well, the pan- what we saw in the pandemic was a lot of baby boomers said, wait a second, the value of my house has just gone through the roof. The value of my investment portfolio has done the same. And I don't really want to go into the office anymore and risk getting sick and whatever. So we had this huge, you know, retirement uh, boom uh, and people who probably should have retired years sooner it was now made possible. So they're all, they've all left the labor force. At the same time, we've realized there's a lot of geopolitical risk uh, in things in, in, in outsourcing all of our production to China, right? Look what happened during the pandemic. We didn't have the PP&E equipment that we needed. It's maybe a, a, a problematic thing to have 90% plus of all of our prescription medicines, you know, produced over there, let alone, you know, uh, technology and things. And so this is why we see these semiconductor uh, issues, you know, where where we're we're banning semiconductor sales to to China and want to, and huge fiscal spending to produce them here in the U.S. It's it's a, a reversal of the uh, the the move towards um, offshoring of production and uh, globalization that we saw over twenty plus year period. So this is another structural force for for inflation. So if you believe those for those were the forces that kind of allowed the Fed to pursue these these massively um 
stimulative policies of 0% interest rates and quantitative easing, those underlying factors are gone, right? So now if the Fed tries 0% interest rates, tries massive quantitative easing, we get a big spike in inflation because we don't have the labor force out there to produce uh, the, the, uh, to, to meet the demand that's created by that type of monetary policy. So my long story short, that means that this era of 0% interest rates quantitative easing is likely done. It's, we're not going back to that. And so that's something I think investors really need to wrap their heads around, is that even if, if the Fed does cut rates in recession, whatever, they're likely not going back to zero. And, and the neutral Fed funds rate these days is probably higher than it was over the past decade. So neutral could be two to three percent instead of zero, you know, zero to one, like it was over that of disinflationary period. So that's a very important thing that if we're in a, if we've gone back to what truly is normal, which is maybe what we saw, you know, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s, then that means, you know, the new, the new uh, monetary cycles may be between one to 2% on the low side and five, 6% Fed funds rate on the high side, which is totally different than the last, the last decade and means you have, to th- you have to think about the economy and investments in, in a different way as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a really interesting point of having to change your thinking about what the market is going to reward in that environment, right? And you also brought up the idea of China and the really the manufacturing base. And that's actually exactly where I wanted to go next. This this trend of moving manufacturing back to the domestic side. What effect on inflation do you think that's going to have? You know, this is an idea that I think a lot of people have kind of forgotten about and we haven't talked about it in a long time, because obviously it takes a long time to bring manufacturing back onshore. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it, it has a very important impact, uh, impact on inflation and on productivity. Uh, you know, there's an interesting in the article in the New York times saying, you know, we, we, we've created all these, these uh, incentives, tax incentives and whatever, and, and, and fiscal policy to support production of semiconductors here in the United States, but also solar panels and wind and all of these kinds of things. And, and at the same time, China has ramped up production of all these kind of green energy things as well. And they want to ship them to the United States at, you know, half the price of what the stuff is that, that we produce here. And so we, we're realizing that, okay, we can, we can uh, uh, kind of incentivize all this production, but what we can't do is produce it as cheap as they can in, in China. And so that's going to create more protectionism. I think we're going to see more tariffs on, on, on the Chinese goods because we can't invest in all this production and then see it just go out of business because China undercuts in terms of pricing and, and nobody buys the U.S. produced stuff because it's too expensive. So, we're, you know, when you look at the history of, of uh, you know, production, protectionism and subsidized production and these types of things, it, it hurts because, uh, you know, uh, that cost of production is so much higher. So that, that does support uh, inflation. At the same time, it lowers productivity, which is also inflationary. And that's one thing that that is one of my my big concerns for the economy generally is that 
we're going to be spending more on on producing these types of things, which the 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 fact that they were so low, low cost in the past um, allowed us to spend money on on other things was really a, a huge boost to productivity, helped keep inflation low and economic growth strong. Mm-hmm. Um, and commodities are are another important part of that too. The fact that commodity pricing was so low, you know, this is a, another point that my friends at Gehring and Rosenzweig have pointed out is that for every energy revolution we've had throughout human history, going back hundreds of years, we've always moved to something that is is uh, uh, more efficient. We've always increased efficiency mm-hmm. from burning coal to burning fossil fuels to you know things to, to nuclear. It's always been more efficient, and so that means we've we, means we've been able to spend less money on energy. We've had more money to spend on on things that, uh, you know, can create economic growth in other ways. Um, now we're, we're with the, this green revolution, which, you know, I, I believe in it has to happen. I think it's good for the, 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 the world and, and whatnot, but uh, it's the first time in, in human history where we've gone to a less efficient form of energy, right? We're going from fossil fuels and nuclear to, um, you know, green energy for, for the money invested produces less energy. And that means we're going to have to spend a greater share of GDP on energy, which means we're going to have less money to spend on all these other good things in the economy, technology and whatever that that boosts the economy and boosts boost productivity. And that in itself is also inflationary and also, um, you know, bad for bad for productivity, which also, you know, uh, hurt, you know, hurts from an inflationary uh, side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this is an important point to really consider. And exactly as you say, it is kind of a longer term problem that is going to come into view here. You also mentioned protectionism. And I think that applies as well from a a conflict standpoint at this time, right? We've seen a rise of conflict in the world over, let's say, the last four decades. So how does this also factor into, let's say, less cooperation between commodity producing nations or even disruptions in supply or shipping that we're currently seeing? Yeah, I mean that's that's another um, important point about this this um, you know Goldilocks idea, and I think it was one of the uh, top defense ministers of the UK came out and said recently that this this era of the peace dividend uh, is over. Mm-hmm. Um, this era time when we could count on um, these major conflicts not rising up. Uh, you know, which is which is part of our experience of the last, you know, forty years. Um, the fact that that's over is 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 also really important because it means, you know, if we're not only we're we going to be spending more on energy, we're going to have to be spending more share as a share of GDP probably on defense, and that's that's you know, uh, another another side of it for for countries uh, you know around the globe, and that leaves less spending for you know things like I said like. Um, technology and healthcare and and what have you, um, and so, but it also, as you 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 point out, um, it uh, to me it represents a stake through the heart of globalization, right? The the uh, coming the the 
taking bringing down of the the Berlin Wall, you know, really represented, I think, the beginning of this period of globalization where let's just you know come back as a, as, a, as a globe to trading with each other and and uh, moving production to where it's most efficient and and all these things, and that was a huge boost to economic growth around the world and also disinflationary because it allowed for greater efficiencies and things of production. Um, but this greater uh, conflict that we're seeing around the world represents that, okay, maybe it's not safe to produce semiconductors um, completely in, in China. You know, if China's potentially going to be a, a, a military threat, military foe, uh, you know, right? Maybe we maybe it's not safe to rely on Russia entirely for all of our natural gas and oil. So this, you know, represents to me, uh, you know, the, these these growing kind of military conflicts, these hot wars around the world, um, you know, represent uh, a very clear signal that this era of globalization has has ended and has shifted in in a different direction, which is, you know, uh, like I said, if that was one of the most important factors of disinflation over the past 40 years, then you can't count on that disinflationary uh, force any longer. And it means that inflation on a, on a, on a secular level is more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Jesse, I'd like to return to the idea of these inflation drivers as input costs. So do you see this as a case of just buying commodities to appreciate in this climate, or do you see certain sectors having demand versus others not? Well, they all have different, you know, um, demand drivers, right? I kind of just touched on some briefly. Um, But I think, you know, for oil and gas, uh, you know, a a big part of the growth is, is just the growth of, a lot of these emerging economies be, you know, industrializing and becoming into the, the 21st century. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems with the uh, talk about um, uh, the use of fossil fuels is a lot of these emerging countries hear that as we don't want you to come into the 21st century. We don't want you to use oil and gas to the same extent per capita that we in developed nations are using, which is, you know, really problematic from from another level, you know, a number of levels to say, uh, India, we want you to remain, um, you know, uh, uh, undeveloped in this respect um, is 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 problematic. Um, so I, I think that's one of the reasons why we see these record demand, you know, numbers is, is you know, populations are growing slowly, but they're still growing. And then you still have these emerging economies, which are still in the process of industrializing and coming into the 21st century. And so demand is going to continue to grow there. But to the extent that we want to offset that, that growth and that fossil fuel usage with clean energy, means the demand for the commodities underlying that, you know, steel and copper, et cetera, the demand for that is going to is going to grow in ways that we haven't seen um, uh, really since, you know, the China and people, a lot of people look to China as the kind of, you know, touchstone for commodity demand. And, and through the last cycle, the real estate development that they went through, it, they were the, the, the major buyer of commodities. But I think people don't appreciate that just because uh, China is not pursuing this 
massive real estate and infrastructure boom any longer doesn't mean that the whole rest of the world pursuing a green revolution isn't going to make up for that lack of demand in China. So I, I think that, you know the demand drivers for commodities uh, are, are there uh, and uh, across the board. Um, and it's going to wax and wane with the, the cyclical factors, but these secular trends of Regardless, you know what the economy does in the short run, we need to hit these these uh, you know clean energy mandates. Um, you know, by certain dates, are going to drive a a, a a real sustainable demand for for all sorts of commodities. Mm-hmm. Well, I spoke with Luke Roman on Monday here, and he brought up the point of having just electrical infrastructure pieces like transformers. How the you know quote unquote green revolution is going to change the demand cycle for pieces like that because it shortens the life of a lot of those components. So it's interesting to kind of sit back and consider, you know, not the green revolution as a whole, but you know, even just the individual pieces of the puzzle that are needed to really achieve that end goal, right? Oh yeah, I mean, and that's I think that's what's underappreciated. We're seeing that with EVs right now, right? Where where government wants to to push uh, people towards EVs, um, and and consumers are pushing back now. And why are they pushing back? Because uh, we haven't really uh, built out the, um, the the infrastructure for for charging these things. I mean, everybody tells you if you want, you know, it's it's great. I own one electric vehicle. And I love it. And it's great for around town, right? I've, you know, BMW i3 that I, you know, it's a glorified golf cart and it's it's a great little car for around town, 150 mile range. And, you know, I can plug it in the garage and it charges overnight and I charge it once a week and it, all the driving around town that I need to do, it's wonderful. But if I need to go anywhere, right, uh, more than 150 miles, there's not, not a chance. I got to put this thing on a trailer and and tow it there because I'm not there's no way I'm going to be able to uh you know do do a longer distance trip now most EVs now have you know 300 mile range maybe 400 miles but if you want to take a road trip it's just kind of a, a disaster to try and take a road trip in an electric vehicle these days and so I, I think it's very very difficult and for people to you know don't have a garage who can't charge overnight I mean there's there's all kinds of cases that uh you know make it difficult or impossible is one of those not to mention the you know electricity production needed if we were to you know want to change over the entire fleet of combustion engine cars to evs that we just don't have the the infrastructure to do that so that is just one example of okay we want a green revolution well how many of those kind of problems um, are in the way, speed bumps, I'll, I'll say, uh, in order to kind of making that happen. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm a proponent of, you know, switching to solar, you know, it makes a great deal of sense. Um, but, but there are all kinds of, uh, speed bumps in the way and costs and whatever. And, and, and like I said before, I think the big picture of moving to something that is more costly and less efficient in terms of energy production has major implications for for economic growth and where the the economy is going to have to where GDP dollars are going to have to flow and it means that other sectors of the economy are going to have to get starved. So Jesse, what importance do you think that the precious metals complex is going to have in 
your view of where things are going as well. You know, we've spoken about commodities, iron, copper, obviously lithium is going to be a big part of that. But, you know, I'd like to get some of your thoughts around the role for, obviously, I guess silver is a big part of the solar panel production. But how about silver from a monetary perspective? And I guess that would kind of include gold as well. Yeah, I'm about as bullish as I can be on precious metals right now for a number of reasons. One, I think they're they're massively out of favor, which I think is ironic with gold price above 2000 an ounce, finally breaking out in a sustainable way above 2000 from a technical standpoint. But what makes it, I think, sustainable is the fact that nobody's chasing it, right? And you look at all kinds of sentiment measures, everything I look at suggests that uh, where investors, you know, and, and through the commitment of traders report, through sentiment surveys, investors chased gold through 2000 um, and the previous few attempts, right? In, in 2020, in 2022, all these attempts to kind of break out through 2000, we got, investors got overly bullish and overly chasing it. We've never seen a time where gold prices have moved higher in the way that they have and ETF assets have actually gone down, right? And retail investors have been selling gold even as it's breaking out. To me, that is, is from a sentiment standpoint, from a contrarian standpoint, extremely bullish. But I think when you look at where we are in the monetary cycle, not just the sentiment cycle, but the monetary cycle, it's very, it's very similar to that 2019 period, right? We saw gold, you know, uh, really sell off when Jay Powell was raising interest rates in 2018. In the fall of 2018, we saw a gold price bottom in anticipation of the Powell pivot that came in late 18, December 18, early 2019. Mm -hmm. Gold price bottomed in, in fall of 2018 and started turning higher. What happened last year? Fall of last year, we saw gold price bottom. You can see the end of the, the tightening cycle. And gold was anticipating once again, just like it did in 2018, an end of an end of the uh, the tightening cycle, and that was really you know very very reminiscent to me of that 2018 19 period. So we've essentially heard the Fed say we're done raising rates. That's very bullish for gold. Uh, they said we're going to continue with quantitative tightening. We might need to taper it, but as I said, if the market is right and we get a March rate cut, that will happen because financial stability concerns really start to crop up. We could start to see problems in the money markets. We've already kind of seen some of hints of those, like I've said, over the last few months. Uh, it's very reminiscent of the repo fiasco in 2019. So, what played catalyst? For the gold price to explode higher from 2018 to 2020, it was this massive reversal in monetary policy. Mm -hmm. So I think we're at the very same stage in the monetary cycle right now, which could be very, very bullish for gold. The fact that investors literally haven't been paying attention to this makes it that much more bullish. But uh, I, I'm just massively bullish because I do think we are going, the quantitative tightening will inevitably lead to some problems in the monetary in you know in the in the money markets if it remains elevated these underlying inflationary trends at the time when the fed is forced to pivot on quantitative tightening that's about as bullish a scenario for precious metals as you could imagine yeah it's crazy to think about all of these indicators that you mentioned that are really pointing the same way yet sentiment is so so really terrible 
Yeah. So what do you kind of chalk that up to, Jesse? Is it more so the idea that there are so many other, really so many other games in town that have appreciated so much. And there is, as you mentioned earlier, this recency bias that everybody is looking at every other dog in the fight and not gold. I think, you know, gold, gold is a reflection of people's faith in the central bank. And what what we were talking about this since at the beginning of the interview, what have markets now priced in? The absolutely Goldilocks perfect scenario where the Fed has sustainably brought inflation down without creating a recession. Like literally, Jay Powell has pulled the rabbit out of the hat. That's what the markets have now priced in. And that's why nobody wants to own gold. Because if the Fed did slay the inflation dragon without creating a recession, then then people should have massive faith in 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 the central bank and and not worry about uh you know w- potential problems with with uh, a lot of the monetary policy we've had in the past few years but as i said if that narrative starts to come into question what is the exact opposite of a soft landing the exact opposite of a soft landing is stagflation its inflation remains elevated and economic growth disappoints on the downside and so i think that there's a real risk that what we get, markets are priced soft landing, what we get is stagflation. If that's the case, that's exactly the thing that's going to drive people to say, oh my gosh, I don't own near enough precious metals in my portfolio because we have weak economic growth, but the Fed can't do anything about it because inflation remains too high. And the Fed has to go back to printing money due to these financial stability concerns, even at a time when inflation is a problem. They're going to be talking out of both sides of their mouth, kind of similar to what the Bank of England did when they had to come in and kind of rescue the the gilts market um, when when interest rates there on the long end were kind of going out out of control. Uh, I think we could face a similar scenario here. Those are the types of scenarios that are 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 absolutely um, uh, as bullish as, as I said as bullish as you could imagine for precious metals. I think the reason sentiment is so poor is because We've now priced in a soft landing across all asset class, including gold. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what gold should look like if we get a soft landing. It's just, you know, doing doing nothing, going nowhere. Mm-hmm. If we don't get a soft landing, uh, you know, then then gold's going to look a lot different than it does today. Mm-hmm. You know, you lay out these scenarios that seem like, I don't know what the right word would be for it, almost like soft, soft scenarios, soft demand drivers for gold. What do you think? let's say the fear component of a disruption in the credit markets, as as you were saying earlier, puts into that equation for the demand for gold at that point. Well, I think it makes, I, I think if, if people are forced to, to realize that the, that uh, we're not going to get a soft landing um, that, that we are going to, that inflation is not coming back to target and the Fed isn't able to uh, uh, really um, address, you know, isn't able to bring inflation down uh, in the way. I mean, what markets are going to realize is, is Jay Powell can't be Paul Volcker, right? What Paul Volcker did was raise interest rates to 20 percent 
um, let alone, you know, the, the balance sheet, you know, worry about the balance sheet, but raise interest rates to 20%, create a massive, uh, the very painful double dip recession in the early 80s, and really break the back of inflation that had gone on for, for a long period of time. The Fed can't do that, because the more they, they raise interest rates, the more we're going to see this fiscal deficit blow out, which means the more debt is going to be issued. And there's already a problem with not enough demand for that debt. So I think this is this is kind of the epiphany that, that markets are heading towards. So I think when markets realize that the Fed's hands are tied, that we already in, are in an era of fiscal dominance, then that's going to be huge uh, inspiration. I mean, it's going to be a huge sign saying buy gold. Um, you know, that, that uh, you know, gold is going to be a major player in this commodity super cycle over the next uh, number of years. Mm-hmm. So, Jesse, are you looking at it from a, let's say, an ETF standpoint? How do you actually look at playing that, that appreciation? Is it, like I said, from an ETF standpoint? Is it from a miner's standpoint? What do you think is the best? kind of direction to look for those gains. Yeah. I you know, I I kind of like, you know, diversifying across a, a number of different things. I mean, I think it makes sense to own some physical. Um I like the Sprott funds, uh, especially the Sprott physical gold and silver and I I have no relationship with them. I get paid nothing from Sprott, but that's Sprott physical gold and silver uh, uh closed end fund trades at about a 5% discount to net asset value. I, I don't know where anywhere else in the world where I can buy precious metals for five percent below market um, that I can in 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 that ET that closed end fund, mm-hmm. um, and that's a sentiment signal in itself, right? When investors are willing to sell that that closed end fund for five percent below market price, it tells you there's just there's just no demand out there. There's no interest. Investors are massively embarrassed. I also think the miners are probably going to lead the the next leg to the upside. I'm I'm amazed at how cheap uh you know a stock like Agnico Eagle is um you know such a super high quality producer and trades at its lowest valuation in the company's history. Tell that's another thing. You look at that HUI gold bugs uh index to the gold ratio just over the last five years or 10 years. And there's reasons why the the, the miners should be cheap relative to the gold price. But it also you can use it as a sentiment signal, and I don't think um, the miners the, uh, right now ha- have ever been um, as oversold relative to the metal um, in an attractive way as they are today. I mean, they're 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 at the bottom of that ratio over the last ten years, which tells me also from another sentiment stand of things, the fact that investors are shunning the the miners even as the gold price breaks out to new to to new highs tells me that investors are are extremely bearish. And and so I think the miners have a lot of catching up to do on the upside. If, as I said, inflation proves more sustainable than the soft landing narrative uh, suggests, this breakout in gold price is going to prove a lot more sustainable than the bears, precious metals bears expect, and gold and miners have a lot of catching up to do on the upside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting and tumultuous decade ahead here to really see the, as you said, you know, there's so many parts of this equation, whether it's these, let's call them the soft drivers for the metals, the fear motivated drivers for the metals, the, you know, rebalancing of the capital cycle and the effects that that is going to have 
there's just so many different ways to look at this. And I really appreciate you kind of illuminating all of those different pieces here, Jesse. But I think that's a good place to kind of wrap up our conversation for today. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of leave our listeners with before we do? Yeah, just, you know, one of the things that I like to ask myself regularly is what's the most hated stock in the market? What's the most hated segment in the markets? And because that's usually the area of greatest opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I do think precious metals and especially the miners, the miners, uh, precious metals miners are probably, you know, the most hated sector of the stock market right now with oil and gas uh, production companies, <laughs> a close runner up. And so to me, the fact that I, I believe we're in a super cycle for commodities and these things are are oversold and uh, sentiment is extremely bearish suggests to me this is a really good opportunity in those areas. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Of course, for those that want to get more from Jesse, including his weekly email, free weekly email, you can get more of that at thefelderreport.com, F-E-L-D-E-R report.com. And of course, you're an excellent Twitter follow as well, at Jesse Felder. Jesse, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. That was fun. Absolutely. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.